years and years ago, John Lennon wrote his iconic song, the thing he's most well known for. It's called Imagine. You're probably familiar with that song. It was, it's what we call a utopian dream. It was John Lennon's vision of a perfect world as he esteemed it. And if you know the song, of course, he was not a fan of religion. He said, there's no religion in my perfect world, but everybody comes together in peace. And you may say, I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. Maybe one day you'll join us and we can be as one. That was the the big call of of that song. It's a very famous and and enduring song. But it's a utopian dream. It's something that is projected as a wish upon a world that is broken. And the truth is, we all have that kind of utopian idea that if you could change the world, you probably have a long list of things that you would change if you could just snap your finger and do it. Maybe you would take away pollution or you would eradicate crime or put an end to war, change the structures of government. All of us could put together our own list in terms of how we might make the world more like utopia, the imaginary state where everything is just as it should be. Well, you know, some people get beyond the point of imagination and have actually tried it. You can Google search utopian experiments and and read all about it. Throughout history, people have done this, where they have gathered up a community, a society, in hopes of pushing out some dominant world reality, some force, pushing those things out so that we can have things just our way, perfect. So certain societies have tried to push out religion or push out government or push out technology. And if we can just live a certain way according to our own ideals, then it'll be perfect. It'll be utopia. Do you know how all those things end? I mean, you could probably guess how all utopian experiments end. Uh, They end in failure. And a lot of times in violence, in terrible conflict, bankruptcy, disillusionment, they fall apart. And the reason they fall apart every single time is the same reason. Because there are people there. Isn't that the truth? As long as you've got people in community, we're prone to, to break apart. We're prone to mess things up because we are sinners. That's what it is to be human. And y'all, that, th- there's, if there's any illusion for you that the church is meant to be that kind of place, a true utopia, a perfect place, y'all, this is a story as old as the Bible. If you open your Bible, you don't even get past the third chapter where we were given utopia. It was called the Garden of Eden, and in a very short time, we blew it. So we as Christians are kind of in a unique spot. We are the church. We are our own community. Um, but we don't have any illusions of perfection, of utopia. We, we give up on that dream, that wish, because we recognize the reality of our own hearts and what the things that, that we bring to the table. There is no utopia this side of heaven. And so we shouldn't try to think of the church as, as this pristine and perfect group of people that if it doesn't live up to our standards, we get disillusioned, we walk away. Sometimes that happens. But in that case, we came in with the wrong expectations because as long as I'm here, this church is not perfect and it never will be, right? And the same goes for you too. So no matter how good the ideas are, when human beings get mixed into the equation, we have a way of bringing things down, okay? But listen, to be a church, to be a Christian church is a unique thing. It is a unique gift. Okay? We, don't, we don't expect perfection, but we do recognize what the Bible says about us, that God, in his grace, has formed a community. This was God's idea. He calls it his church. He calls us a family, not merely scattered individuals who get together periodically to sing songs and listen to a message, but we are meant to be a, a family, and we are set apart for the glory of God. We're meant to be different. We really are.
And Colossians 3 gives us a wonderful picture of this. When Paul talks in Colossians 3 about how you and I are meant to live together as an expression of God's grace, he tells us the kind of heart that produces this community. Now, understand here, Paul doesn't give us a whole lot of external behavior so much as he gives us a heart disposition, okay? Because really, we said this a few weeks ago, it all begins in the heart. No matter what our external behavior looks like, we can fake our way through some things, perhaps, externally, but only from the heart comes true and genuine change. And that's what Paul is aiming for today when he commands us how we're meant to live together. Okay? So let's just dive right in. I read this a minute ago, but let's look at it. In, in parts here, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul told us how to avoid sin last week, but this week he's going to focus on the positives here. Look at this, verse 12. He says, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. Notice right off the bat, before Paul gets to behavior, he focuses in on identity because identity drives behavior every time. Paul is saying we are chosen by God in his grace. He has declared us holy. He has set his divine love upon us. That's what it is to be a Christian. All those things have been gifted to us by God through Jesus. Therefore, we are a new people. A new identity defines us. Therefore, in light of that new identity, Paul says, look, verse 12, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Uh, If you were with us last week, or if you just backtrack a few verses here in Colossians 3, Paul is giving us an image of putting on a new wardrobe. He says, put off the old self with its evil practices, like an old dingy shirt. You take it off, you get rid of it, because you've been given a new wardrobe. You put on the new self, who is being renewed in the image of Jesus. That's what we're called to be, right? And Paul says there are virtues associated with the new self. He gives us a little list. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now, you know what all those things have in common? A heart that esteems others above yourself. Now, think about that. There'd be no reason for compassion all alone. Who would you feel compassion for? There's no reason for kindness unless you're kind to someone, right? And, and the whole list is reflected in that, that this is the kind of heart that esteems others more important than yourself. Paul gave us that same command in, in Philippians 2. And so, so the idea for us uh, is that we would be the kind of people who esteem one another above ourselves. Now, that's a tall order already. I know that. But think about how we've been treated as followers of Jesus. There's a, I, we come back to this story a good bit in John chapter 4. Jesus has this wonderful encounter with a Samaritan woman at a well. You may be familiar with the story. Where there were all sorts of cultural rules Jesus was breaking in that story. It's actually kind of a scandalous story. Because in the culture of his day, men were not supposed to speak with women they didn't know. That was considered um, inappropriate, like a pickup. You didn't talk to strange women, and yet Jesus talks to this woman. He initiates. Jews were not meant to deal with Samaritans. There was a racial divide between them, but Jesus crosses that gap as well. And and moral people, good religious leaders like Jesus, were not meant to associate with immoral people. And we find out that this woman was living in an immoral way. And yet Jesus crashes through all of those social boundaries in order to engage 
this woman, and he exhibits in that story exactly what Paul's telling us to be, that Jesus was compassionate with her. Even though she was in sin, he loved her. He was kind to her. He was humble. He didn't hold himself up above her and treat her as less than. Jesus was gentle with this woman. He was patient with her. He offers her eternal life, something she could never deserve on her own that she never thought she could have. Jesus gives it to her in that moment. And listen, y'all, we, regardless of how highly I might try to esteem myself in my own mind, I'm just like that woman and so are you. We are people who need Jesus to treat us this way. And that's the good news of the gospel, that no matter where we've been, what we've done, no matter how deep our sin, Jesus has looked upon us in the same way. He's been abundantly kind and patient and gentle and compassionate toward you and toward me. And the outcome of that, if, if, if the Bible is not giving us stale and cold commands for our behavior, but the Bible is actually commanding that we exhibit what we ourselves have received, you see the difference? What that kind of grace does, if Jesus treats us in this way, before he commands us to go out and do likewise, that kind of grace tenderizes our hearts. There shouldn't, y'all, and, and, I, and I realize that we're all failures in different ways in these areas, but it's an oxymoron to say a prideful Christian, a harsh Christian, a cold Christian, because we've been treated in such a way that it's meant to change our hearts and how we treat each other, right? I mean, that's what Jesus has done for us. There's just no place for me putting myself above you. That's why these commands are in the Bible. They're not natural to us, but they come to us supernaturally. He's treated us this way, and therefore we are able to do it for one another. If you read through stories, I, I, I encourage you to Google utopian experiments just to see how they all turn out. Every last one of them turns out the same. There's a power struggle. There's a conflict of interest. People start feeling used or ignored, stepped over. People get abused. Uh, people get uh, stolen from. Uh, people don't get a voice. They don't, they, what they thought it was going to be, there's a disenchantment because it doesn't turn out the way that they were promised or the way that they hoped, and those things all disintegrate. But do you see, at least in theory, do you see how the church is meant to be different? The church can be, and frankly, sadly, is guilty of all the things I just said. Right? We have no illusions otherwise. But at least in principle, do you see what the church is meant to be, how we're supposed to be different? If we really did esteem others as more important than the individual self, what we could actually become. And again, it doesn't come to us in a cold, detached kind of way. God says to act this way. No, Jesus acted this way. On the cross, he did this for us. And therefore, we don't just have a blind allegiance to a faraway God. We have a God who loved us enough to genuinely grant us compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness. He is these things for us. It gives us a fighting chance to actually become new. Um, now, I've said this twice at least already. We, we have no illusions of perfection, neither does Paul. He's just given us this wonderful image, right, of what we could be, what we ought to be. But look at what he says next in verse 13. No illusion of perfection here. He says, and bear with one another. Do you know what that means, to bear with one another? That means we have to willingly put up with each other. That's what it means. In all of our failures and faults and sins and all the irritating stuff 
that we bring to the table, Paul says, you bear with one another through all that mess. There's a popular notion, uh, you may have seen it on Facebook. It says, if someone is hard to deal with, cut them out of your life. If somebody is difficult, get rid of them. Only surround yourself with people who boost you and make you happy and help you fulfill your dreams. But that is not how the life in Christ works. That's not how the church functions. We're meant to bear with one another. Y'all, the the church is not an eighth-grade cafeteria. Sadly, we might act that way sometimes, but that is not who we are. The church is a new family, the people of God set apart for God's glory. We're meant to be different, and that requires, listen, some of us struggle. Some of us are difficult, and some of us are surrounded by those who bring difficulty to our doorstep. You can't cut them out of your life just because it's hard. Paul says, bear with one another. And then he says, and even beyond that, you look at the second half of that verse, 13, and forgive each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you forgive each other. Um, Because we are sinners, we are in constant need of asking for and offering forgiveness. And this is, honestly, one of the very hardest commands in all the Bible. You may have sins that you struggle with, you know, whatever it may be, envy, greed, lust, you know, we go down the list. But forgiveness might top them all. Because forgiveness, here's what forgiveness is. It's basically absorbing the hurt that someone else has caused you. It's it's not getting revenge. It's not evening the score. You, You refuse to hold that sin over that person's head any longer. You forgive them, and therefore you release them. Who pays the price in that case? You refuse to make them pay. And in some very deep and real sense, you pay by offering forgiveness, right? That's what makes it so difficult. You trust God with the outcome, and you set that person free from what they've done to you. It's one of the most unnatural things in the world to do, right? You you don't don't have to tell you that. You know because you've been through it. And that's probably why, you notice this, Paul attaches Jesus to the command. He doesn't just say forgive each other, although that would be enough. We know that's the right thing. He says, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. When we come to Christianity, one of the most beautiful things about our faith, we don't have a moral duty to forgive, period, Although, again, God is well within his rights to just declare it, and and there it is. But listen, in Jesus Christ, we, we actually have forgiveness. Forgiveness itself, not a moral duty that exists within the, uh, within the human will that we've got to muster it up to do it because we know it's right. No, we have in Christ forgiveness itself. We have the thing that's been done for us in Jesus. No matter what anybody else ever does to us, it cannot match what we and our sins, the, the, the debt that we built up for ourselves against God that he willingly forgave through the cross. That's why in Psalm 103, God makes this incredible statement. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions from you. An immeasurable distance between the two, between you and your sin, because God is a forgiver. And so, y'all, listen, forgiveness is not just a moral duty. If that's all it was, 
then we could lament how tough it is, and in the end, we probably would never get about the business of forgiving others. It's just too hard. But in Christ, what we've been graciously given, we're now able to give to others. We see how this works. You put any command that we've been given today in this same place. Why should we be compassionate? Why should we be kind? Why should we be humble, gentle? You know, those kind of things. Because that's the way we've been treated. And for me, that's, that's the bottom line. It would be enough for a God in heaven to say, these things are right and do them. But to actually have a God willing to humble himself, not just to tell us to be humble, but to show us what it is and make us the beneficiaries of his humility, making himself nothing, dying on our behalf. It's insane that the, the resources that we've been given, God has been compassionate and humble and gentle and patient. God bears with us. He tells us to bear with one another. Do you ever sit and wonder how God hasn't given up on me by now? I mean, if we're sober-minded about who we really are, y'all, I've been, I'm a pastor. I ought to be above the things I, that, I, that I think and say and do, and, you know, in my own mind, and I'm not. We're all in the same boat together, and we, we, we just, we, every, every single day, I'm sinning, I'm falling short, I'm taking God for granted, and he bears with me. He loves me in spite of me, and he feels that same way about you, that he forgives us our countless failures. Beyond measure, he forgives us. We're meant to imitate what we've been given. That's what makes this different. That's what makes this more than just mere religion. And y'all, so often I take a list like this, a good list of behaviors, of, of, of uh, qualities of the heart, in this case, kindness, compassion, gentleness, patience, and I do something that I want to warn us against. I look at a list like this, and I come to this conclusion. God just wants me to be nice. And so often that's what we kind of make Christianity about, that we're, just, we're meant to be nice. That's, what, that's how we raise our children to think. We just, we're meant to be nice. You hold the door open, you're polite, you're cordial, be nice, as if that's really all that God is asking us to do here. Um, and I hope you see that that's not the bar. The bar is not niceness. That's really too low of a bar. That, if you're anything like me, we've probably learned as we've gone through life how to fake niceness and get away with it, how to be cordial in public even if we're not feeling it in our heart. Right? Anybody can do that. No, what we're being called to right here, in light of all that we've received from Jesus we now become conduits of that grace to one another. Niceness doesn't cut it. Niceness is only skin deep. We're meant to be a people who reflect the very heart of God. So we see, I hope again, we see, this is meant to form a new community. Right? Not a utopia, right? We have to forgive each other. Paul's mentioned that already. That's not a surprise to us that we're not perfect. But we are meant to be new. We're meant to be different. This is the kind of community, the church, that even our sin couldn't tear apart because we're so quick to forgive and offer grace, right? That no matter how dysfunctional we are, and we are, that the church community can actually grow and thrive and become the light of the world that we're called to be because we exhibit the light of Christ to one another, right? That's not a pipe dream. That's possible. It really is. Now, is there a unifying principle in all this, something that kind of binds it all together? Paul says there is. I want you to see verse 14. He says, Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond or glue of unity. 
Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. If you're familiar with your Bible, you'll notice this. A lot of appeals to unity, especially in the New Testament, a lot of commands to be unified, to be of one mind, to one spirit together. Jesus prayed for that right before he died in John 17. He prayed for unity among his disciples. Why is that so important? You know, something unique about the church, the church is a community that is not bound together by the typical things that bind humans together. We're not bound together by shared hobbies. We're not bound together by shared race and ethnicity. We're not bound together by shared political interests. Okay? We are actually bound together by common faith in Jesus. And that means that the church, unlike any other community in the world, the church is meant to be made up of all tr- tongues, tribes, and nations, of all different races and ethnicities, all different backgrounds, all different social and economic classes, all sorts of different political opinions, that rich and poor, black and white, none of those things make any difference when it comes to the church because we are bound together, Paul says, in Jesus. And practically, the way that we work that out, he says, put on love because love is the perfect bond of unity. That at the end of the day, kindness, compassion, gentleness, humility, forgiveness, those are streams that, that lead into the ocean. They all go to the same place, but ultimately, Paul says, it's love. The love that we've been given, Jesus said, just as I have loved you, so you love one another. That's what binds, that's the glue that brings this whole thing together. That word love, by the way, uh, in Greek that Paul wrote, there were different words of love, different shades, qualities. This is the deepest one. This is agape love. Agape means sacrificial, selfless love. The kind of love that a mother has for a child. The kind of love that God exhibited toward us when he died for us. Agape love. That's the glue. That's familial love, family, the church. That's what we're called to. And in verse 15, you see, he says, the peace of Christ should rule, meaning Jesus's peace gets the final say. He's in charge. He rules in our hearts. We have peace with God and we have peace with each other because of what we've been given. That's why we're called in one body, the church. We're not splintered off individually trying to do our own thing. We're, a, we're one people together. And then and Paul kind of tacks on at the end of verse 15. He says, and be thankful, almost like it's an afterthought. I want to encourage you to see, be thankful, not as an add-on. If you've got any time left over at the end of your worship service, be thankful. No, y'all, if, if, if love is the glue, uh, I, I'm trying to think of another good analogy. Uh, gratitude is like fuel to the fire, fuel to an engine. If you know a truly grateful person, it's disarming. It, it, we're not used to it somebody who never complains, somebody who's truly grateful to be alive and even in the midst of all the pain that they've walked through in their life, a truly grateful person, we don't know what to do with that kind of person, right? Um, But that's in a sense, that's the fuel of what we're being commanded. There there is, I, I, I just, if there's such a person who truly in their heart is grateful to God and also divisive and hard and cold and rude, I've never met that person. I'm just not sure you can be both at the same time. And so Paul says, listen, these things bind us together. Love, peace, gratitude. You see how this is not just behavior externally. This is a disposition that fuels it all, right? 
Now, do you know anybody like this? I mean, you take in totality what we've said today. Kindness, humility, patience, compassion. Somebody who's, who's, who bears with, who forgives, who loves, who's at peace, who's grateful. Do you know anybody like that? I hope you do. Your life is, is enriched if you do. You know what I hope even more? I hope you know people like that who are in this room right now. Because that's our shared goal. That's our shared goal. This, this, what Paul is calling us to right here is not, Kyle, be this kind of person because it's the right thing to do and that will grant you personal integrity in God's eyes. Paul is not commanding Kyle alone. Paul is commanding us together, the church. Now, what I tend to do is take things like this, what we're looking at today, and I tend to personalize it, individualize it, and make it only about my personal integrity and not about how we function together in the body. And in that case, I'm doing something good, but I'm not actually fulfilling what the Scripture is commanding here. Your personal integrity is necessary. It's wonderful. It's important. I would hope that you would take seriously all of these commands today personally and in the private devotion of your own heart. Yes. But the point here is that these qualities actually show themselves and grow when they're done within Christian community, not when they're lived out alone. It's in the context of the church. So if you, listen, if y'all, if you find in your heart and I'm, I, I can guess that all of us, as we look at this list, you can say to yourself, man, I really lack compassion. I lack humility. I lack patience. I'm not a forgiving person. And I recognize the command that I'm being called to reflect Jesus. And there's a conviction in my heart. That's a good thing. The answer, though, is not to take that conviction and get alone and hunker down and try to solve that problem alone. The whole point of what Paul is saying when he speaks plurally to the church, he says if you find yourself deficient in these character qualities, the solution is not to withdraw and try to fix it. The solution is to dive in, is to engage all the more with the church. Because the truth is you are weak where other people in this room are strong. And you're also probably strong where other people in this room are weak. And therefore, as iron sharpens iron, the proverb says, so one man sharpens another. We don't become humble, kind, compassionate, forgiving people in a vacuum. And if you're a good American like me, you've probably always thought of the commands of Scripture only from an individual perspective, but only when we take them communally, corporately, together as a church, do we actually sharpen each other and fulfill the command. So this is not just you on an island trying to become more humble. It's never, it's, it will never work that way. It happens in community. That's a lot of times where we fall apart. I like the idea of personal integrity. I struggle with the idea of you knowing my business, of you knowing where I struggle, of you potentially confronting me in something that I'm not doing or that I'm doing that's wrong. I, that's where I get uncomfortable where it gets abrasive, where it's like sandpaper, that's where a lot of us say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I signed up for me and Jesus. I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> and some, somehow, perhaps, we, we become disenchanted with the whole idea. But you see, we'll never grow. If it's just me and Jesus, y'all, praise God for that. You, you don't get saved in a group. You get saved individually. But it's not just you and Jesus. 
He created for himself a people, plural, for his own possession. Zealous for good works, Titus 2 says. So we've got to, to get out of the vacuum here and engage with one another so that we can sharpen each other. You see how Paul concludes this? This is, I love verse 16. I memorized this at some point. I'm so glad I did. It stuck with me through the years. Verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. When Paul says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, don't read that as just read your Bible, just read your Bible, just read your Bible. What Paul is actually saying is, we as a people are defined by the word of truth. More than just reading our Bible, we are saturated in the word because the word is what defines us. The only way we grow as a church is if we are saturated in the gospel of Jesus, in the word of Christ. And so let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That's not just daily devotional time. That is a life consumed with the grace and truth of Jesus. That ought to be our aim together. And again, we all raise the temperature for one another in that. We don't just do that private and solo. Um, Psalm chapter 1 speaks of a man who delights in the word of God, and in his word he meditates day and night. Psalm 19 says that there is, uh, the word of God is more valuable than gold and, and sweeter than honey. Uh, it's meant to be that precious to us. That it would richly dwell within us. Charles Spurgeon said that the word of Jesus should so saturate us that there's nowhere left for it to go but out. And now our relationships are flavored by the word of Christ as well because it's so rich in our lives. And you notice one of the ways that that comes out? Very interesting. Paul says, with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. One of the ways that we teach and guide and even correct each other in the Word is through song. Now, I've always thought this verse to be strange. And maybe you're like me in this way. Because I think of singing worship songs, I think of that as really a personal, private, emotional, this is between me and God. And yet what Paul is saying right here is that it's actually communal. It's not just me and God when I sing. It's us together in church. So if I have a mind to say, well, you know, when I'm in church, I can either sing or not sing. Who cares? I can, I can hold my hands up or I can put my hands in my pockets. doesn't matter. And it doesn't, by the way. I can like this song and not like that song. I can prefer a certain style over the other style or whatever it may be because it's all about the personal experience of worship. That's what I've made it out to be. But do you see this? Paul says nothing like that. Worship is a deeply emotional, personal experience, sure. But Paul says it's also instructive, and it's interpersonal. We sing psalms and, and hymns and spiritual songs to God, but Paul says also to each other, among each other. Uh, he mentions three things, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What's the difference? I think what Paul's trying to com communicate here is spontaneity, variety, that we don't get locked into any one way of doing things. Even back in the Old Testament, maybe people would have said, well, I'm a psalm kind of person. I only sing the psalms. And other guys would say, well, you know, but there's, there's more than that, right, that we can sing. Oh, no, 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 no. And, we, you know, we can do that in the church, right? I like the old hymns. I like the new stuff. But there's a variety. There's a spontaneity. We all bring this to the table when we sing, that we're meant to sing in a way that edifies the church. Um, 
We try, now I, we, don't, we don't do anything perfectly here at Harvest, but we try to let this inform how we do worship, we, how we sing. Can I, I don't, you may have wondered this at some point. Why do we use the instruments we use? Why do we sing the songs we sing? Let me give you three real quick things um, as to why we do what we do in, in song. Uh, different churches do different things. That's fine. Here's what we do, okay? First, we sing songs. We try to always sing songs that reflect biblical truth. We don't sing a song just because it sounds good, just because we like it, just because it's the thing on the radio, necessarily. Uh, we try to sing songs that reflect biblical truth. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you and sing from that. That's what we try to do. Uh, secondly, we try to sing songs that always focus th- themselves on God and on the redeeming work of Jesus. Uh, if, if a song has a lot of I, me, my, mine in it, we typically are careful about that song. doesn't mean we don't sing it, but we might not because of the risk of losing focus, that we're not worshiping ourselves, we're worshiping him. And so we try to always focus on, on God and, and our singing. And then thirdly, we try to sing in such a way that we can hear each other. We never want to play instruments in such a way that we blow the room out now, that makes maybe for a great experience, a great personal me and God experience. But I don't think that's what Paul's telling us to be about, that we're, we're meant to edify each other when we sing, which means we're meant to hear each other sing. It's not just about me in this moment. It's about us. And so we try to sing in such a way that it's, it's called congregational singing. Uh, it's us, not just me. We're, we're meant to build each other up through song. Isn't that neat? I don't know if you've ever thought of worship that way, singing that way. This, this shapes me and challenges me too. What Paul says, uh, that, that this is more about us than it is just about me. Kind of crazy. Um, but that's how, I mean, that's how the Christian life works, right? This is not Kyle's thing. This is not Jake's thing. This is not Bet's thing. This is our thing together. We're a new family. Y'all, we've covered a lot today. I realize that. How do you sum it up? Here, Paul makes it really easy on me today. He sums it up for us. So wonderfully, so succinctly. Verse 17, as we close. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. That doesn't just sum up today. That's pretty much everything, right? That's, that's your whole life. That's our whole life together as a church. Whatever you do in word or in action, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, meaning a heart that is for his glory and giving thanks through him to God the Father. Um, the encouragement I want you to take from this today We have no illusions of perfection. Maybe you've been burned by a church before, or maybe you've just come into church thinking, this is meant to be perfect. This is meant to be all just as it should be. And then you find out, man, these people are hard to deal with. These people are annoying. These people are different than me. Or I kind of like these folks over here, but not those folks over there. And we we might subconsciously take on the cafeteria mentality. And we're back in middle school again. And Paul is saying to us here that we don't, have to, we don't have to pretend that we're perfect or that we're meant to be. We bring sin to the table. We all have to practice repentance and forgiveness. We are frail and needy. We're dependent people. We need Jesus ultimately, but we also need each other, even if that's hard for us to admit. We need each other. That's the way God set it up. The good news in all of that is that we don't have to be disenchanted when people let us down. And we will, and I will let you down if I haven't already. We don't have to lose hope in that case, because the thing that binds us together is not us. We have a Savior who loved us 
before we ever took a step in his direction, before you ever did anything good to earn his affection, he loved you and gave his life for you. And that very same Savior, Jesus Christ, calls you now to himself and promises to slowly conform you to his character, changing the fundamental disposition of your heart, making you more like him. And we have a Savior who unites us in a body and calls us his family, the church. And he centers us not on ourselves, but he centers us on God, the worship of God. In other words, we have everything right here. Right here, we have everything we need to do everything and be everything God calls us to be. Weak, frail, sinful, disappointing as we are to one another. We have a Savior who has granted us a grace that can truly make us new in the community that he's given us to call home. Right? If you don't think of church as your family, I want to encourage you to invite that new idea, that new reality into your heart and ask God to give you a love for these people that is not of your own making. Left to ourselves, we disintegrate. In Christ, we have a fighting chance because his peace rules in our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, this is such a heavy message for me because I, I just I tend to take so much to be just about me. Um, and Father, I, I pray that for, for all of us in this room where we share that same temptation to make the Christian faith about me and not about us, to lose perspective, um, to, to become inwardly focused, that you would show us a better way. You'd show us the way, the thing that you created when you said, I'm, I will make a people a church, a family, members one of another, that we are called into a new community where our faith really gets to be lived out, where, where the, the whole thing finds its place. Um, we can't do this alone. We were never meant to. So, Lord, where we have, have made it um, purely individual, bring us, Lord, to a new definition of what it is to be a follower of Jesus, a Christian, that, uh, that we're together in this. And Lord, just give us a, give us a sober mind to, to see how we pollute the water here. I, I, I bring a lot of junk to this church. Um, as, lo as long as I'm here, we'll never be perfect. Humble us, Lord, to, to recognize that. But also give us a, give us a better uh, and a higher goal than just walking it alone. Give us a goal that says, I, I, I'll engage in the great work of your new community, your new family, um, because we are the light of the world together, and, and we will only grow to the degree that we grow together. Lord, this is, I know this is new for some of us. This is cross-cultural, counter-cultural. Um, but Lord, I pray make it so. Give us, a, give us a higher vision of what it is to be Christian today. We are saved. We are made new personally. But now we're brought into something bigger than ourselves. And, um, and Lord, this, this is a gift that we, that we do not deserve. I thank you for Harvest Church. Uh, I am so, so vastly better because of Harvest Church than I could ever be a part. 
And I pray that we would all come to that place. Um, Lord, we love you. Thank you. Thank you that you've not left us to figure this thing out alone. Thank you, Lord, that you've brought us together. And give us the kind of heart that, um, that makes this the community that you had in mind when you, when you made us. We love you, and we ask your grace because we need it. We ask your grace in the mighty and wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.